Hi, everyone. As we enter the third week of Advent, we'll join Christians all over the world in lighting a candle to remind us of the first coming of Jesus, the light of the world, 2,000 years ago, and the second coming of Jesus that we still wait for. We light the third candle in joy. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. Thank you for standing with me in reverence as we read the Holy Scriptures from Luke 2, 8 through 21. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is the Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there, were, there was the, with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it, was, as it had been told them. And at the end of the eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Well, good morning, all of you. Uh, in case you don't know me, my name is Josh. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. And this will be my last sermon at Door of Hope. <laughs> I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Wow, that means a lot to me. Uh, if, if you don't know, uh, my family and I, we are, we're moving out of state. Um, and we'll still be around. We'll still be around for a few more weeks. So we're, I'm not going to like finish the sermon and then walk out the door and you'll say, well, there he goes. Uh, I'm still going to be here for a few weeks. So please uh, say hi, uh, say goodbye, whatever. If, if you want to talk to me or talk to us, we'll be around. Um, and by the way, if any of you are secretly going, last one, all right, uh, that's okay. Preachers come to realize that God's anointed several preachers in the world uh, because the way the message comes through each one of us is different. And uh, there isn't one preacher for everyone. So uh, no, uh, I harbor no ill will if you're secretly or openly excited that I'm not going to be here anymore. <laughs> anyway, okay. Enough about me, uh, let's pray and then get into the text. I'm going to do something, well, I guess this is more in keeping with the sort of liturgical elements of Advent. I'm going to uh, 
pray a prayer, I ask you to pray a prayer with me that somebody else wrote a long time ago. This is a prayer by a guy named uh, St. Basil of Caesarea. Eternal God, uncreated and primal light, maker of all created things, fountain of pity, sea of bounty, fathomless deep of loving kindness, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord, true Son of righteousness, shine in our hearts and fill our souls with your beauty. Teach us always to keep in mind your judgments, to wrestle with them, and claim you continually as our Lord and friend. Govern uh, Govern by your will the works of your hands and lead us in the right way, that we may do what is pleasing and acceptable to you, that through us unworthy servants your name may be glorified. To you alone be praise and honor and worship eternally. Amen. Well, Merry Christmas, everyone. We're one week closer. Uh, by the way, we're not only one week closer to December 25th when we celebrate Christmas, we're one week closer to the second coming too, Jesus, to his return. Um, and we're going through a theme in each, each one of these, and this one is celebrating joy, as you've heard in the song. Joy to the world, and you'll hear it in other songs you don't hear in church. It's the most wonderful time of the year, you know. We love Christmas. Who doesn't love Christmas? We love Christmas for a lot of reasons. Most of us, we have, uh, you know, the thoughts of it's, it's cold outside, you know, and so you come into someplace warm. Maybe there's a cozy fire. You get a hot cup of something that warms you up inside. Maybe you're close to family, and that makes you feel all warm, or there's just really good food, and there's no uh, shame in having to loosen your belt a little bit. Uh, The amount of calories and sugar we consume this time of the year is, I think, wonderful, and it is a... uh, it is a, pre, a foretaste of the feast that's going to be going on in heaven, but in that one we'll have different bodies, so we don't have to worry about the waistline. So anyways, yeah, we love, we love Christmas, right? We love it. It's wonderful. Uh, we have all kinds of, all kinds of good uh, memories and images associated with Christmas, but it's interesting to, to realize, though, that the first Christmas, this one, they didn't have all that. They didn't know it was coming. It wasn't like they're like, oh, hey, guess what? It's the most wonderful time of the year. Here it comes. It wasn't like that at all. It was, in fact, quite dull and ordinary. It was just a day like any other day. For most of them, maybe not for Mary, because she's going to give birth. But for most of them, there was no... They didn't know they were in the Christmas story. They didn't know that. They were just in life. They were just doing life. And that's how most of our life is, right? We're not like, oh, I'm in some great drama and today's going to be a big day where something happens. Maybe you do anticipate some of those things, but not when God's going to break through. Not like this. So here's what I want to do. I want to go through the story a little bit. Many of you have probably heard it a thousand times, and maybe I'll introduce some elements that are new to you, and maybe not. Hopefully you're not bored to death with that. But then I really want to talk about how we can connect with this story, how it can connect to us. One of the challenges as a preacher, and Cameron can tell you this, is you know these things are coming. You know you you have these seasons of the year where you have to preach a sermon on the same text again. And so there's this temptation to always make it exciting or new or intriguing or something like that. Somehow make it not just boring. I just want you to know, like, I wasn't, I wasn't trying to make, go out with a bang or something. This is just, I'm just preparing a sermon, okay? So hopefully uh, the Lord will work without a bunch of fireworks. Uh, but if there are fireworks, that's cool too. 
All right, so this shepherd begins with, or the shepherd, the story begins with shepherds. Oh, this is going to be a long sermon, I can tell. <laughs> the story begins with shepherds in a field at night, right? Uh, shepherds. It's interesting, uh, uh, when we think of shepherds, we have these cozy images, don't we? And for good reason, too, right? Uh, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I sh- it's all about the Lord taking care of us like a shepherd takes care of his sheep. Jacob was a shepherd. Moses was a shepherd. David was a shepherd. And then we have, like, little felt characters in our house of, of shepherd people for the nativity scene, you know, that sort of thing, too. But I'll have you know that being a shepherd was not, like, fuzzy and warm. It was dirty, okay? You, you're, you're out for days and days on end with just a bunch of animals, a bunch, a bunch of sheep that are dirty and ornery. And it's been weeks since they've probably taken a shower. You're out in the heat of the day, the freezing cold at night. There are nits and bugs and fleas that are jumping on you out of the, out of the sheep's wool. Okay, it's not, it's not this warm, fuzzy, bucolic scene that we like to imagine. I grew up in the country, so I know about these things. I know it's beautiful. Yes, it's true. But the picture of it and living in it are two different things, okay? Um, so the shepherds, they're out there, they're, it's this ordinary night, they're probably freezing cold. Some of them are probably asleep, others are awake. Who knows, maybe they're singing a song or something like that. They don't go, hey, tonight's Christmas night, I bet some angels are going to show up. That's not what they do. It's not like any other night. They're just, they're just out there going, I hope a bear doesn't come, I hope a lion doesn't come, I hope one of our sheep doesn't sleepwalk off a cliff or something like that. They're just doing their job. They're working the graveyard shift. Anybody here worked graveyard? I have. It's not, it's not an enjoyable shift. In fact, I ended up getting so sick uh, that I had to quit my job. My doctor was like, um, people who work graveyard don't live as long as people who work a normal shift. So they're on the night shift, okay? On an ordinary night, <clears throat> the shepherds do. And then all of a sudden, boom, there's this appearing. An angel appears. I'm going to go through, uh, I just talked you through verse 8, but I'll read it again. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. Boom. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, wow, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you was born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So it's the middle of the night, and this angel just simply appears. Now, it's interesting how, you know, we live in a world, we, we live in a post-enlightenment world, right? And it seems kind of odd to us that, oh, this angel just appears. The, the idea that there's this heavenly realm that is in and among us, and that any moment could penetrate the veil and something could just appear to you. That seems a little odd, a little far-fetched, a little fantastical maybe in, in our world. Or maybe you're super-duper postmodern and you're like, no, anything could happen. A tiger could just materialize right here, and I wouldn't be surprised. I imagine maybe you would. But anyways, these guys are surprised. An angel shows up to them. It's like a curtain. Have you ever been to a play where there's like a curtain or a, or a show? And they have a curtain that goes, shh, shh. Okay, this is like at the beginning of the act. But like before they come out, there, there will be somebody who walks through the curtain. Walks through there and the curtain's still closed. So the angel just like comes out and it says the glory of the Lord shone around them. So this light comes out from behind the curtain. And he gives them this message. What does he say? Well, the first thing he says is don't be afraid. 
That's a pretty common motif if, you, if you're familiar with Scripture. When angels appear to people, they freak out. And the angels have to say, it's okay to not freak out anymore. You're, you're going to live. You're going to survive this one. So that's what happened. I mean, this is what happened. If you, if you had read uh, the first couple chapters of Luke, you'll know that this is actually the third appearing. There was an angel that appeared to Zechariah, John the Baptist's dad. And the first thing he says to him is, don't be afraid, because he was shaking in his boots. And then the second story, the angel appears to Mary, and he says to her, don't be afraid, because she was scared too. So here we go. Story number three, the angel appears and says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Why? Because I have good news. I have an evangelion, a gospel gospel for you that will be great joy for all the people. Now, we could make a big, a big um, deal out of the fact that this is for all the people, but at that time, probably what they thought it meant for all the people, all of God's chosen people, for all of Israel. You read the rest of the Gospel of Luke, you'll start to see how that, how that all people doesn't mean all of a select people, but it's for more than that. So I'm not going to get too deeply into that, that portion of it. What I do want to talk about, though, is what he says here. Uh, great joy for all the people. From you was born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now that's interesting. He's just given three titles for this baby who's been born. Savior, Christ, and Lord. One of the commentators I read pointed out that this is the only place, or, or at least it's the first place in Scripture, where these three titles are all connected together. This idea of a savior is something that's largely reserved for God in the Old Testament. Bible that they had been, these shepherds might have been aware, aware of, would have talked about God as the savior, and, and as a savior, it really means a deliverer, somebody who delivers you from peril. That's what a savior is. Occasionally it refers to someone other than God, but most of the time it's God. And then he uses this other term, a savior, Christ, which is the Greek word, Christos, which comes from the Hebrew word, Mashiach, which means an anointed one. It was, it was used of David, somebody who's anointed for a particular task of God. And it actually finds its height in the Old Testament in Daniel 9, where somebody who's called the Mashiach will come, deliver the people, and rule from Jerusalem. So it's, it's a person who's a savior. It's a person who's the Mashiach. And, of course, they believe, the shepherds would have thought, okay, uh, not this is somebody who's going to save us from our sins, but that... The, this is a savior from our circumstances, right? Sins and circumstances are not the same thing, right? They, they're connected to one another, but they're not the same. They would have been thinking here, okay, great. We're going to get out from under Rome's thumb. We're going to have a better life. We're going to have a better life after this. Our circumstances are really going to change. That's what they would have thought. They would have thought of the promise, the promise of the Messiah. But the Savior Christ and the Lord, that third title, that one is used in the Old Testament. Well, here's how it works. In the Old Testament, there was a, a special name for God, the I Am. And the way we think it was pronounced is Yahweh. But they didn't transliterate that into Greek. They didn't, they didn't try, and, try and make you say it. When they translated the Old Testament into Greek, they used the word kyrios, which is the word that they use right here. So this connection of Savior Christ and Lord is, is in some sense a new con would be a new concept for these guys because the Christ was not necessarily equated with God himself. It's always thought of as a human deliverer. So this, of course, probably went right over their heads, just like most of us in our lives. You know, 
I imagine, I'm not, I'm not that old, but I can already see right now, there are things that happen or things that have been said in my life that I thought I knew what they meant at the time. But only later as I look back do I understand the significance of what happened or what was said. That's what's going to happen here later on in Luke. Go read it. I invite you to. It's always right here. Just go read it. So, they tell, they tell the shepherd, or the, the angel tells the shepherds, hey, I got good news. Savior Christ the Lord has been born in the city of David, and he says in verse 12, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger, and this will be a sign. He's saying, hey, you know what? You might be tempted to think that maybe I'm part of last night's undigested pizza. But here's your sign, in case you're concerned about that. By the way, the, the angels did that with Zechariah and Mary, too. With Zechariah, he said, here's your sign. You're not going to be able to talk for however long it was, for nine months. And he didn't. And with Mary, he said, here's your sign. Your cousin Elizabeth, who is beyond the age of childbearing, she's pregnant. Here's your sign. Now, what's interesting about this one is those two, those two other signs were something pretty supernatural. Somebody, like, suddenly not able to talk or somebody who can't give birth suddenly becoming pregnant. Those are kind of supernatural, right? But this is, here's your sign. You're going to find a baby wrapped up in, in a feeding trough. That's pretty ordinary. It's pretty ordinary. Interesting. So, go check this out. I've, got, I've given you a sign. Go investigate for yourselves. And then, just in case, you know, they were still, that still wasn't enough to hear about the sign, the curtain parts, right? And they see... It says, verse 13, Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now this is, this is crazy. If you've read, if you're familiar with the Bible, you will know that there are these varying visions of the throne room of God. It's called the throne room of God. Where God's presence is, and God is always said to be surrounded by these creatures... We're glorifying and honoring God in this way. It says that just about every single time you have this sort of throne room thing, you have the celebration happening. Celebration happening. It's glorifying. And you know, when, when we think of like God glorifying God, sometimes we, could, we might think like, oh, God's so big, please don't kill me, give him glory, you know. Oh, give, I'll give you glory, just don't, don't squash me, you know. Sometimes we think of, of glory and, you know, God's like, give me glory. Give it to me. That's not at all the way it is. You know why they're so excited? Like, they're genuinely doing this from the heart. They're not, they're not doing this because they're in, in pure subjugation, and if they don't, there's going to be a, a big club that's going to hit them. They're actually celebrating. They can't help it. Like a kid on Christmas. They can't help it. You know, there are, there are a few times in your life, especially as an adult, there are even fewer when you will actually get outside of yourself and be able to celebrate in this sort of way. It might have been a while for you. But do you know why they do this? It's because God is the epicenter of joy. Okay? We, we, have, we have this idea. We almost think that like fun is the devil's, inven- is the devil's invention and God is like, is like the buzzkill keeping you down. It's funny that we say that, or we think that, even though we're, we're too pious to say it. We think that when, when Jesus, 
His, the primary accusation against him was that he was associating with the wrong people. He was a wine-bibber. He was hanging out with these sinners. In fact, his first miracle was to make like gallons and gallons of wine to keep the party going for an extra couple weeks. Okay, God is the, the center of fun. If, if, if joy, happiness, delight is water, God is the fountainhead. If you're to take every ounce, every drop of joy or happiness that anyone has ever had over anything in this world, and you're to trace that water to its origin, you will find God. The devil's work is to get you to not trace that back to God, but to stop it somewhere else. And that's why we don't give glory to God, and we don't have joy. We don't actually trace that thing back to him, so we come closer to his presence and actually find joy. It says in Psalm 16, in your presence is the fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's why the angels can't stop singing. That's why they can't stop celebrating because they can't help it. They're just overwhelmed with joy. Have you ever been, <clears throat> have you ever been to some place on this planet that was spectacular or seen something that was truly spectacular? Maybe you're like, yeah, I was in Salem a few years ago in the, uh, what were they called, the Path of Totality. Maybe you were there and that was awesome. One of the most spectacular places for me, back uh, when I was uh, a year out of high school, I went to a place called Havasupai. Anybody been there? It's in the Grand Canyon. It's in the Grand Canyon and there are these beautiful, exquisite waterfalls there that, that pour down into these pools that pour down into more pools. It's just amazing. I saw it, one day I saw it at a place I worked. It was a desktop, and they had the desktop background that changes every once in a while, and it popped up. I was like, I have been there. But you go somewhere like that, and what do you do? What does everyone do? The only right thing to do there is just to go, wow, I don't deserve this. This is incredible. And it doesn't matter whether you believe in God or not. You might say, look at what evolution has given us. You know, like you will go, wow. That's what they're doing nonstop. That's what God's presence is like. So the angels show up. Oh, all this is happening. You know, maybe they're singing Handel's Messiah. Maybe that's how Handel got it. They revealed it to him later. I don't know. Luke didn't pick it up. But anyway, so the angels go away. Verse 15, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, that's quickly, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So let's continue the shepherd's journey, okay? So they go, <laughs> I imagine they're standing there like, did that just happen? That, did that really just happen? We better go. We better go find out if that just happened. Let's go find this baby. So they go, and uh, contrary, scholars are now saying, you know, I don't know. I don't know, scholars come up with new things all the time, but scholars are now saying it probably wasn't a cave or like a barn stable outside. They've discovered a lot of houses that were kind of two stories and the lower level was where you kept the animals because then the, all the animals' body heat would rise up to where, where you, your living quarters were. So, you know, 
Jerusalem is not very wooded. You, can, you don't have a whole lot of sources of heat there. Um, so they go in, they find Jesus, they find Mary, they find the baby, and then they make known what had happened. They go, do you know, do you know why we're here? Angels told us that you would be here and that this is the Savior Christ the Lord. What's interesting, too, is it says um, in verse 18, and all who heard it wondered. It's interesting. It says Mary and Joseph and the baby, and then it says all who heard it. Why, is it, why doesn't it just say Mary and Joseph wondered? Probably there were more people there. And I don't know if there were other angels sent out to talk to other people uh, and bring them there. Maybe it was just the people in the house above who were like, hey, there's a baby crying. Let's go check it out. I don't know. Who knows? But there's other people there. And they wonder at it, too. They're like, whoa, really? An angel just told you guys that this was going on here in my house? Ooh, that's exciting. But just says they wondered. And in the end of the story, they, the shepherds eventually leave. They go back to their job. They go back out to the graveyard shift. I imagine they woke up their buddies who were sleeping. We're like, dude, this just happened. Dude, you totally missed it. You totally missed it. You know, can you imagine that, sleeping through that one? Oh, oh I missed it. It's not like it's going to happen again. You can hit rewind or something like that, right? No, you just missed it. It reminds me of, okay, this is, this is a slight diversion, but back in, back in the day and, and before JC, Josh, uh, I actually slept through one of my closest friend's weddings, and I showed, I, as soon as I woke up, I called. I was like, did I miss it? They're like, yep, you did. So uh, sometimes, sometimes you miss it. These guys did. Some, somebody in here probably did. Anyhow, so they go back, and they're exalting, and they're glorifying. They're doing what the angels did. They caught it. They caught a glimpse. They touched the face of God. They caught a glimpse of that joy, and it infected them. So they were honoring and glorifying God, even when they went back to the crummy graveyard shift. Let's change perspectives for a second, though. Let's, let's think about Mary. How's Mary doing? You know, for the shepherds, this is an ordinary night that turns out really extraordinary. For Mary, you know, we also have like a, a, a more romantic view of what Mary's going through. But imagine you ladies who've given birth. You're nine months pregnant. Anybody ever rode a donkey before at all? Okay. Uh, anybody rode a donkey for like dozens of, of miles while you're nine months pregnant? Okay. So, so Mary is, is riding a donkey. And then once they get there, there's nowhere for them to stay. They have to stay with the animals. I imagine for Mary, it might have gone something like this. Now, this could be, Josh, this is just your imagination. Yes, I know, this is just my imagination. Maybe I'm making it up, maybe it's real. But I imagine Mary might have, at some point, questioned. She might have wondered, should I have been so gung-ho about this? <laughs> Lord, should I have been so gung-ho about this? You know, because when she agrees to this, she is uh, pregnant out of wedlock. She's probably called a whore or a slut or something like that. She's at the very least suspect from her community, right? She's already endured that. Now she's nine months pregnant on a donkey. Joseph has probably been called a dupe for taking her in when obviously she's been unfaithful to him, right? And they end up, Lord, I thought that maybe you'd Roll out the red carpet or just give us a mattress <laughs> and set of straw. You know that the straw, if you've, if you've been around animals, you know that the straw isn't there to make them a fluffy bed. You know why the straw is there? It's, it's an air freshener. The straw is there because it's easier to clean up their poo-poo and their pee-pee. 
by just sweeping the straw out and to actually clean it off the floor. So that's where Mary is giving birth, okay? She, she might have, okay, so now we're removing some of the romance, huh? It's a little less sentimental, isn't it? Because that's really how it was. And she's there, and she's giving birth. Next to these animals, they're probably going, you know, they're making their noises and they're smelling and all of that. She needs some disinfectant probably. You know, having a baby is messy. She might have needed this, is what I'm saying. Mary didn't know that this was Christmas morning. She knew that something had happened to her, that God had done something to her. And she might have needed some people to burst in and say, we saw the hosts of heaven telling us that this was going on and that you are the mother of God. She might have needed that. She might have needed that. And so it says, Mary didn't wonder necessarily, maybe she did, but then she treasured and she pondered what had happened. There's two words there. To treasure something is to value it. She valued what was happening. She said, I'm going to remember this moment, mental snapshot. And then to ponder is to pull, it's like pulling out a picture and looking at it again. Pull it out, look at it again. Maybe there were more things that you didn't see before. She treasured and she pondered this moment. She needed it. She knew something was happening. Now, I'm going to finish with the story there and talk about us, okay? In some, at 5 p.m., 5 p.m. there in Bethlehem, nobody knows that it's Christmas, <laughs> okay? Nobody knows. Nobody thought it had the sentimental scene with the little wise men and the shepherds and the little stable and all the cute things. There's no felt planograph stuff. What about us? When we think about this story generally, you know, we love this story. We're a sent- so this is a sentimental season. We love Christmas stories, especially sentimental ones. Obviously, I painted it for you in a way that is not that is a bit less sentimental. But I will actually go a bit farther, and this might, I mean, maybe it's easier for me to be bold like this because I'm, I'm going to be leaving soon, but I'm going to say something that might make you angry. Uh, and that's okay, you can come talk to me afterwards. But we actually don't like this story. We don't like it if, if it was our story. If this was our story, we would not like it. You wouldn't. Who, who dreams of becoming the shepherd? Who, who wants to work the night shift out in the cold? Who wants to be, be out there in graveyard with the fleas gnawing at your side, sleeping in the dirt, not bathing for a very long time, perhaps other people reminding you that you have not bathed in a long time? We actually don't want this to be our story. We don't want to have this kind of story for ourselves. Or think about Mary. I just went through all that stuff with Mary. Certainly none of you ladies are like, that's how I want to do, <laughs> do birth. Certainly not. So we don't actually, you know, we do sentimentally, but not actually. And one of the reasons why we don't want something like this for our life, we want all the angels and all that glory and all that good stuff without all the, all the poo-poo and pee-pee and blood and bile and all that. It's because we have hitched our sense of joy in God's work to the wagon of positive, good, top-of-the-world, life's-going-my-way circumstances. And we all do it. I'm not, I'm not excluding myself from that. 
We all think that God's at work and we're going to find joy when the good thing happens. You know, when you get into that school or you get that job or you get into that house or you get into that neighborhood or you get into that inner ring of associates or whatever it happens to be. When you get that number in your bank account so you don't have to, you don't have to count anymore. That's what we all want, right? We, want to have, we just want to have enough to where we don't have to budget. You just have what you need when you need it. That's what we want. And we assume that God is doing his most important work in those kinds of areas. That's how we would write the story if we were writing our story or we were writing this story. But we didn't get to write it. And guess what? You might think you do, but you don't get to write your own story either. I've been trying for a long time. And I tell you what, I'm, I'm a bad author and it's not working out super well. It's a lot better when I just say, God, you, you write the story. Okay? Uh, it's not the way I would have wanted it, but you're a better author than I am. That's what he does here. God insists on having it his way, okay? We want to we be co-authors. We, wanna, we want him to be our, maybe our editor, but we're the genuine author. No, God will not have it that way. Think about it this way. Think about the ways that God wrote this story that you would, and I were not. First thing is the city of David, Where's, where he is born. Where is the Messiah born? I didn't notice this until this time reading through. I've read through this text, I don't know how many times, but this is the first time I noticed this. Luke calls this the city of David. And in the Old Testament, the city of David is never referred, it's never referred to as Bethlehem. Bethlehem is not the city of David in the Old Testament. Jerusalem is the city of David. The place where David is at the height of his power, where he's the conqueror, where he's the king, where he's successful, where he's on top. Bethlehem is where David is the lowly, obscure shepherd boy. It's his humble origins, not his conquering on top of the world uh, mountaintop. That's where, that's where God's going to have it. God has his kid born. God has his child. Think about you and your children. He has his child born into a poor family. He could have had him born into a royal family. He could have done that. At least the aristocracy. Maybe the priesthood. Something a little bit more honorable. Could have had him born in a palace, or at least a bed, but an animal room. Anybody been to a to a state fair or a county fair? You know what animal rooms smell like. Who wants your child to be born there? I certainly don't. Even if they have a lot of disinfectant, I still would not want my child to be born there. What about the appearance of the angels? God says, "Hey." Gabe, come here, come here. I've got a mission for you. I want you to go. I've got a message for you. You just, just tell him what's going on. Just tell him, okay, okay, Lord. Who do, who do you want me to go to? Uh, you want me to go to the high priest? Oh, oh maybe, maybe, maybe I should go to Herod. Maybe I'll go to, go to Rome. I should tell them. Uh, no, I want you to go to, to um, some shepherds. Okay, which ones? Like the, no, they're just, they're just, they don't even have names. <laughs> In the story, you know, they don't even have names. That's how insignificant they are. Those are the people who are going to come. They're going to be the deliverers of the first gospel. They're the first ones to announce it after the angels. This is the Lord. No, the Lord insists on confounding our wisdom. He confounds the wisdom of the wise. And how often does God work in unglamorous places? You know, we're, we're dulled and dejected because we refuse to look for him there. We look for God at the top, not the bottom. But he insists on working at the bottom all the time. He insists on doing that. Have you guys ever heard of Dan Gable? Anybody heard of Dan Gable? Nobody. That's what I thought. 
the only reason I know of Dan Gable is because I wrestled in high school. He was the greatest American wrestler of all time. And I'm not talking WWF, okay? I'm talking like real uh, Olympic freestyle folk style, that sort of stuff. So he was the most successful American wrestler up until a guy named Kale Sanderson about 20 years ago or so. He was 117 and one was his record in college. And he only wrestled two years after college. The first year he was on the US world team where he won the worlds. The second year he was on the US Olympic team where he won the gold medal and nobody scored a single point on him the entire time. Then he went into a coaching career where he coached for 21 years at Iowa where he won guess how many? 21 Big Ten championships. And then he won 15 out of the 21 years national championships. One of the most successful uh, coaches and wrestlers of all time. Why do I bring him up? Because he says the most important match of his entire career, wrestling or coaching, was his last match in college where he went from 117-0 to 117-1. It was his loss that changed his whole life. I bring this up because, one, well, two reasons. One is, this guy's a wrestler, no, none of you guys know about him, but you know what? Wrestling is God's idea. He, he, he started it with Jacob back in the Old Testament. And you know that God's name for Jacob and for God's people who descended through Jacob, you know what, what that name is? It's Israel, and that name means wrestles with God. God is a wrestler, and he insists on wrestling with you. And that's what I'm trying to get us, get us through, is to wrestle with this. Not sentimentalize it, but wrestle with it. The other reason I'm bringing this up is because very often it's our losses, it's our low moments, it's those low points in life where we really, really see God work. How many people, how many people, may, you might not have heard, heard very many, but you might also experience this. You might hear somebody say something very suspicious, like, I hate the fact that my spouse cheated on me and left me, but that was the best thing that God put in my life. It's the best thing that happened to me. I hated battling cancer, but that was the best thing that God did for me. You'll hear people say these kind of almost sadistic, twisted things, and they're not crazy. What they are is they are people who have been low enough to see that while the devil is at work, you see, oh, oh, no, this can't be God. This has got to be the devil. How can I be so drawn down to the bottom? And they realize that underneath the work of the devil, God is working. He's undermining that work, and he's going to turn whatever that is into something so much better and more glorious. The devil will not win. God will win. So if you are at the bottom, you know what I'm talking about. You know that you don't need a sentimental God. You need one who has weathered the storm and tragedy of life like you. Somebody who, well, who was born in a manger to poor parents. Who in the end of his life would be tortured to death, would have his back flayed open and be nailed to wood so he could suffocate and die. While, by the way, one of his friends betrayed him and his closest friend denied him and the rest of his friends abandoned him. He knows what you're going through if you're at the bottom. He's been there. And I don't say that in just a sentimental way. He knows what it's like. He's been there. He came to do that for you. 
and for me. When they looked at the cross, when all these people looked at the cross who knew Jesus, they didn't say, oh, God's doing his greatest work. Look at that. No, they said, this is terrible. This is a tragedy. That's why they all fled. That's why they all abandoned him. They thought it was over. But God was doing his greatest work right there. If you're, if you're feeling like you're at the bottom right now, God may be doing his greatest work in your life. I'm not saying that these things are not painful and difficult. I'm not saying that we should work to alleviate suffering for ourselves and for others. What I am saying is this, God will win. He is doing something in the tragedy, in the poo-poo-pee-pee straw of the barn. He's doing something there. And what this means for us is that you don't have to wait for your life to get better in order to have joy. Because God's right there in the pain. He's right there at the bottom. You don't have to wait for it. And this should fill us with awe. This should fill us with awe and wonder and joy. So do you have joy? You may not be at the bottom. You may not be at the top. Maybe you're somewhere in the middle. Maybe your life lacks joy. Do you know why that is? You know, one of the reasons why we lack joy, probably the most important and significant. We lack joy because there's a distance between us and God. Those creatures that are around God's throne, they're right next to Him. So they always have that joy, but we are, we put things between us and God. Things get between us and Him. It's like putting walls in a room to keep you from hearing what's going on on the other side of it. And the primary wall that we have around us is sin. Here we go. Preacher man's going to start talking about sin. Of course I am. Because that's what's getting between you and God and getting between you and the joy that God has for you. God is the fullness of joy and he wants to share that. And I want you to share that. So I want to do you the service of telling you to get that stuff out of the way that's keeping you from it. Now there's two sides to sin. Most people think of the bad things you do. You're in rebellion or you're running away from God and that is sin and that does keep you from God. That does put that distance there and you're not going to have joy if you're rebelling against God. Maybe you're not a Christian and sin is a new term. It's bad stuff. Things you know are wrong. There's all kinds of things that you don't know are wrong that you're doing too. But those things get between us and God. But there's another side of sin. You flip the coin over. And it's not the bad things we do, but it's actually the good things you do. You might be saying, what What do you mean by that? What I mean by that is this. Very often when we do good things, what we're really trying to do is to finish the wrestling match, to get God off of our back, to put ourselves in the position of control, to be in the driver's seat. Hey, I'm doing good. Hey, God, I gave you my 10%. Now I get the other 90%. Stay Stay out of the 90. It's mine. Right? Very often we do good things not for the others we say we're doing them for, but for ourselves so we can feel better about ourselves so we don't actually have to deal with God. Think about it. If, if you know, there's nothing specific in your life, think about this. Sin is not just a deed, it's an attitude. It's an attitude. It's a posture that we have. And we want to be the teachers, not the learners. We want to be the givers, not the takers. We want to be the adults, not the children. We want to be the winners, 
not the losers. But in God's arrangement, the only way you get close to him is admitting you're a loser. You gotta be in that place where you're the receiver. You gotta be in that place where you're like, I can't do anything. My righteousness is filthy rags in front of you. I can't actually prop myself up and be like, look at me. See, I did it. Okay, see ya. Our good deeds, our own self-righteousness that subtly, without us knowing it, makes us just slightly more smug because we don't have to deal with what they have to deal with and we're not like those people. So sin, two kinds of sin, that gets between us and God. Now what's the remedy? Of course, there's a remedy. If lack of joy is distance from God, then you close the gap. Close the gap. How? That's the question. And the answer, let him save you. Be that one who's in the need of saving rather than the one who's in control. I got this. You know, I, I, maybe it's just a, a macho man thing to grow up with, but for, for us men, it's really hard to not be like, I got this. To actually show some, some degree of vulnerability and weakness that we actually need a savior. So stop putting your badness or your goodness between you and God. That's the thing to do. Take the position of a child who must simply and humbly receive what God has for them. Remember when we were studying the book of Mark in chapter 10, Jesus talks about children. He says, unless you receive the kingdom like a child, you won't have it. You have to receive it like a child. You have to be in the position of the child, of the loser, not the winner. Think about, think about this. Some of the most sentimental and wonderful movies of Christmas time, right? Christmas Carol, It's a Wonderful Life, Family Man. No, okay. Uh, the reason why I bring up all three of those is because they're all movies that have to do with someone having a dream. They all have to do with somebody who doesn't need help, and help has to come from the outside. Remember in It's a Wonderful Life, Jimmy Stewart? The old building alone, you know, he, uh, he needs an angel to intervene. He's going to throw himself off of a bridge. To intervene and, and send him through this dream that will transform him. Same thing in a Christmas carol. Scrooge doesn't see there's anything wrong with him. He doesn't even think he needs to be saved. And we just watched the, the Family Man Nick Cage movie the other night, so it's in my, it's in my head. The, the scene where the angel is talking to him. He doesn't know it's an angel. And he goes, I don't need, Nick Cage says, I don't need anything. He goes, oh, okay. The angel says, oh, okay. You don't need anything. All right. This is going to be funny. And then he sends him through the, this life of a dream he, so that he does realize that he has a need. That's a glimpse of the gospel message in all of those movies. That we all have a need and salvation has to come from the outside. There is no self-optimizing, self-actualization. It's not like God says, okay, I did all this. Now I'm going to be over here. Now self-actualize and get yourself over to me. No, 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 no. They're, they're, that's not going to happen. Salvation has to come from the outside. So here's the other thing that's going to make you mad that I'm going to say. Christmas isn't about what you give. As wonderful as things like Advent conspiracy and, and what we give to our kids are, Christmas is ultimately about what God has given to the world. 
And it's, I'm not saying don't give. I'm not saying you shouldn't give. We, it's good for us to give and to be selfless, but you cannot give what you have not already received. So Christmas is about Jesus, the gift and the giver. He said, I came to give my life as a ransom for many. Do what John the Baptist did. He says this in, in John chapter 3. He says, this joy of mine, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. Be the receiver. This Christmas, I invite you to become like a child again, to receive the gift of Jesus, all that he has offered you in his life and death and resurrection. Receive him again like a child. My daughter, Trinity, uh, she's about two and a half, and this will be her first Christmas where she will get it, where there's a tree and presents will appear, and a lot of them will be for her. And she has no idea that this is coming. It will really be the first. Now, you guys are giggling because you know what's going to happen. God wants you to be that child and have that joy. Stop robbing him of the joy he gets in giving it to you. Be like a child. Let's pray.